I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. It's that time of year again, the best time, Halloween time. I think part of Halloween's appeal is how it can be a mix of Disneyland with Las Vegas, but with a lot of candy. We decorate our homes with things that any other time of year might be deemed macabre. Excuses need not be made to act wild, silly, or childlike. Costumes of clothing we would never dream of wearing around our friends and family become totally acceptable. Like Mean Girls. I love that. It's the only time of year you can dress like a total S-L-U-T. Oh, is that a quote? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Rules become obsolete and the line of expected behaviors begins to blur. Today I'll be telling two stories of lives lost on Halloween, a pair from Alaska and a teen in British Columbia. All three victims having held out hopes for an enjoyable Halloween night while falling victim to the horrors the holiday can bring. Marie Riley of Alaska made the news back in November of 2015. She had just graduated from Juno's Therapeutic Court, which was a program she participated in in lieu of going to jail. Marie had a long, difficult relationship with alcohol. Growing up in the tiny village of Napakiak in Alaska, she had a happy childhood with her family, her dad a public safety officer for the village with a population of just 400. But then adulthood came, and it wasn't so idyllic. Starting in 1984 with the dissolution of her marriage to Gary Riley, in 91, things started to change for the worse. First, just a citation for not wearing a seatbelt, leading to more serious offenses like driving under the influence. From there, domestic violence charges between her and her partners. As her criminal activity increased in severity and frequency, so did her consequences. From DV to DUII, she was then charged with theft and forgery, earning her time in jail. As the years went on, her rap sheet grew. Shoplifting, false police reports, larceny, probation violations, trespassing, more DUIs, and driving with a revoked license. All of these violations earned her a life in and out of jail. She spent time at the Lemon Creek Correctional Center and even Juno's Haven House, kind of a halfway house for women. And Marie was memorable to the staff of the Haven House. She was angry and difficult. The director of the program even saying, quote, She was an angry little lady. She really was. Her presence, she exuded anger. And she had a right to be angry. She hadn't been a drinker growing up. She was a mother to Denise, Josephine, Brian Sr., Janelle, Roberta, Amber, and Robert. It wasn't until her family suffered personal losses and turmoil that she began to self-medicate. One of the biggest tipping points was the loss of her daughter, Josephine. Here's a little behind the scenes for you guys. After digging for hours, I was only able to determine it was Josephine that had been murdered. However, the only article or really anything with any information I could find was from a Google group. In that group, the person posted what looks to be a legitimate article from the Anchorage Daily News. However, the person that posted it was from a patriarchal group and put a very disrespectful headline with the article in the group, which received messages from one of Marie's children and Marie herself. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, he titled it Bitter Girl Kills Bitter Girl. And so because it was, and I don't really understand how Google groups work, but it's kind of like an email forum, it looks like. And so um, Josephine's sister, I believe, posted a couple responses of like, yeah, call the other girl bitter, but don't say that about my my sibling and, Mm -hmm. and how dare you just really upset. 
And then Marie actually went on and was like, hi, I'm actually her mother. Could you please not like was very calm and respectful about Mm -hmm. it to try to, you know, get him to change. And there were no responses. That's so hard because I don't I don't think people think about that kind of stuff sometimes Mm -hmm. when they post because they're hiding behind a screen name. Mm -hmm. Or you're like, oh, I'm in this group for men. And so we're going to call them names. And it's like, that's literally her daughter. And you search that name. What do you think Mm -hmm. pops up? Oh, it's one of the only things I found. That's very, very sad and disappointing. Yeah. I reached out to the Anchorage Daily News after scouring newspapers.com and Anchorage Daily News' archive, but I was unable to find the original article, all of which turned up bupkis. So I can only say I believe this is an accurate article, but if anyone has any additional information about her case, please send it our way. It was January 7th of 2005 when Josephine Pillack Ann Riley, 21, her friend Margaret Maggie Jacob Anvil, 28, and her boyfriend were all hanging out at Josephine's place. Drinking through the evening, it was about 1.30 a.m. when the boyfriend left, but Maggie didn't. Waiting for Josephine to fall asleep, it was about a half hour later when Maggie lit some blankets on fire and strolled out of the house, <gasps> leaving Josephine behind to die of asphyxiation. Purposefully? Yes. It was 2 a.m. when the calls to 911 were made about a fire engulfing the house. It wasn't until later that day when investigators discovered human remains in the rubble, eventually confirming that it was Josephine's body. It was believed that during the hangout, an intoxicated Josephine maybe made passes or was flirting with Maggie's boyfriend, which was enough of a reason for her to kill her friend. She was arrested for first-degree murder and first-degree arson. She was held on $100,000 bail. Before killing Josephine, Maggie had only a few charges of disorderly conduct and as a minor in possession of alcohol. I was able to find her charges, and since I'm not a lawyer, I can't say I fully understand where she is in her legal process, but it looks like she has already served her time for the murder, which appears to have been only about 10 years, and she's currently trying to fight having her probation lifted. So that means it's not first-degree murder. Yeah, I'm thinking she maybe took a plea deal or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And she has since moved to Anchorage and changed her name. Well, yeah. Understandably. I, I took for the, every time we do an episode, for the life of me, how, I don't understand how you get to that point. Of getting to change killing your name someone, or killing no, someone? No, killing someone who's your friend, your oh, family yeah. member. I understand the concept of like walking in on your lover in, in the a r- throw arms of, passion, of someone else. Maybe, yeah. And then like hitting them over the head with the lamp i i get that right. but for the life of me i i mean maybe she was a hothead and didn't think it through but and that I is mean, i'm not a drinker so i can't really speak to the feeling of being drunk but it's like i don't know if you can uh, get so so drunk you not excusing were tipsy it one time i, okay, I will call barely barely <laughs> certainly not enough to be like what did i do so i don't know if that's oh, right. something that she attributes to it to be like Oh, I was blackout drunk. I had yes, no idea what I was doing. because that is real. Blackout drunk is a thing, and you wouldn't have any memory. But it's so. also like, but, but that's what you do? Ew, that's still that's in scary. you. That's that, still like your inhibitions being taken down. I find it frightening that yeah. at any given moment, a friend could do something like that. Yep. It makes you not want to have friends and just live in the woods alone. I mean, I'm working on it. <laughs> It was in 2015 when Marie realized her surviving children and grandchildren needed her in their lives, and she was determined to turn her life around. Entering her therapeutic program, she never missed a day, always showed up to court, and took the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous seriously. 
As reaching recovery came closer and closer to reality, Marie's life didn't magically become easier. She lost her father, one of her sons started having health issues of his own, and through it all, she persevered. Her biggest tip for anyone struggling with sobriety, be open and be surrounded by positive, encouraging people. That's my number one thing. That's what really taught me what I needed. After being known as the messy town drunk, it was an inspirational and powerful moment to see Marie get her certificate from the therapeutic program. That's why she was featured in the paper. Everyone wanted to celebrate her success. Those that had worked with her saw a woman transition from an angry alcoholic to a thriving mother, neighbor, friend, and grandmother. Even when it seemed hopeless, they knew that giving her the opportunity to work on her issues would lead to a healthier, longer-term positive outcome than just more jail time. That was back in 2015. Fast forward to noon on October 31st, 2020, when police were called to the Fairview Apartments where there were reports of two bodies found in one of the units. Police arrived and found a grisly, bloody scene at the home of 60-year-old beloved mother and sober superstar Marie Riley, where she had been entertaining a guest, George Tredikoff. It's unclear what the nature of their relationship was, but just like Marie, George had his own difficult past. He, too, had a history of offenses similar to Marie. And like Marie, he had been featured in the newspaper, although his story had been 40 years earlier. It just so happened that George and a friend had gone fishing in January of 1977. Catching 77 rainbow trout out of season, George was arrested and sent to jail for 19 days. 19 days that were so confined and cold, George contemplated taking his own life. He made it out alive and was interviewed later that year to discuss the ever-changing laws of the Alaskan wilderness. George was frustrated that the federal government's laws were impeding his and his family's ability to maintain their lifestyle. An example he gave of how the laws benefited the predominantly white sports hunters that came to the area for hunting was that the fishing permits were allowed in the summer, when most indigenous persons were away for seasonal work. Seeing as he too struggled with alcohol, I can only guess that perhaps the two met at a meeting or crossed paths through recovery. There was an article where a family member of Marie's mentioned they didn't know who George was, so it appears he hadn't been a long-term friend or partner. Along with the discovery of Marie and George's bodies, which had been stabbed to death, bloody handprints were found as well. Those easily led detectives to Christopher Legions. Just like his victims, he had a history of run-ins with police, but his charges were more serious, as was his jail time. Among his visits to the clinker, Christopher had been charged with assault, reckless battery, criminal mischief, interfering with the report of a domestic violence incident, failing to follow officer directions, and his biggest charges, assault in the fourth degree with reckless injury, causing fear of injury, all part of a domestic violence incident, and later, assault against a police officer, resisting arrest, and fleeing. Those events were in 2016 and 2019, respectively. Pleading guilty and sent away on the latter charges, Christopher was jailed until early October 2020, just three and a half weeks before the murders of Marie and George. With the murders happening just shy of a year ago, Christopher is still in the court process. He has been charged with two counts of murder one, two counts of murder two, and one count of tampering with evidence. Once we hear if he takes a plea or goes to trial, we will keep you posted. There appears to be no motive or reasoning behind the vicious killings. 
It's just so sad when you hear that someone was able to overcome their own personal demons or the hindrances that accompanies being an indigenous person, especially in Alaska, only to have the success, love, and inspiration those people bring to the people they care for ripped away so needlessly and horrendously. I was going to say that. There's something extra heart-wrenching when it's somebody's put in so much work to yeah. overcome all those things that were holding them down. And, and then us, this happens. And so often we hear those things when someone's the victim, you know, especially like a sex worker. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, they struggled with drugs or they. So it almost it almost like excuses it diminishes, or like it diminishes. Yeah, That's it a diminishes. perfect word. And so it's like, here's this person who was disregarded in normal ways of just like, oh, you know, she's kind of the mess. And this team around yeah. her, they they all worked. But she she had to put the work in like anyone in recovery. It's the person doing it for themselves and she did it and it's like here she was ready to start that life after losing a child so horribly and you know devastated by the loss of her father and then just gone yeah and for what appears to be no I mean I didn't see anything about suspected robbery, robbery or, or did she have a relationship with him maybe I I there's there's no indication that any of them knew each other wow so I I I will be very interested to hear where his trial goes and what they end up saying yeah, happens. Yeah, because they're going to have to have some sort of motive in court. Something. Or if yeah. he takes a plea and, and maybe gives a confession or something. But I'll, I'll be very interested to find out what that was. Yeah. But Or what know. evidence they found that they're not releasing. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's so much to build the case. So we will keep you guys posted as soon as we hear any updates. <laughs> My second story today comes from Armstrong, British Columbia, located about 290 miles northeast of Vancouver on a map you could land on it by going north from Pendleton, Oregon or Kennewick in Washington. With a population of only about 5,000 people and plenty of job opportunities, Armstrong was actually named one of the top 20 best Canadian cities to live in. The safety of the small town made the shocking discovery on Halloween 2011 all the more hard to comprehend. Taylor Van Deest was just 18 years old in 2011. She and her twin sister had recently graduated from Pleasant Valley Secondary School, where she enjoyed playing flute in the jazz band, blues band, and the junior-senior band. Music was her biggest passion. Taylor was a popular teenager, witty, loved, and talented. She hadn't decided the direction she wanted to take in her life, but her family would have been proud no matter where her dreams took her. Feeling like she was coming to an age where trick-or-treating would no longer be acceptable, Taylor made plans for one more Halloween night out. Only a year after the premiere of The Walking Dead, Taylor chose the ever-popular zombie as her costume. Headed to her boyfriend's house for a party, Taylor left home at 6 p.m. that All Hallows Eve. As she made her way on foot, she was texting her boyfriend. It was nothing unusual until he received the message, Being Creeped accompanied by a suspicious eyes emoji soon after Taylor left home. To her boyfriend's understanding, that meant someone was following Taylor. That was the last message Taylor sent. Oh, how uncomfortable and spooky. Terrifying. Going, hello, can you talk to me? I yeah. mean, I can't even fathom. After receiving that haunting text and realizing Taylor didn't make it to the party when she should have, her family was called. Quickly, Taylor's friends and family began searching for her, they made their way along the route Taylor would have taken from her house to her friends. At 7.30 p.m., someone found Taylor's phone near some train tracks and called her home, so the search party focused on the area the phone had been found. 
Taylor was just eight blocks from her front door when at 8.45 p.m. in bushes near train tracks, she was found alive by her boyfriend. She was face down and had a steel pipe under her head. It was clear she had sustained injuries to her head and had been choked as there were marks on her neck, redness in her eyes, and an open wound on her skull revealing blood and brain matter. Once discovered, Taylor was put in an ambulance and taken to the closest hospital, which, due to Armstrong's size, was in the city of Kelowna, an hour drive away. Sadly, even with all of the attempts made by the emergency medical team, Taylor died shortly after arriving. When canvassing the surrounding area, police spoke to a woman who lived close to where the attack took place. She claimed to have heard two female-sounding screams, but assumed they were related to Halloween scares. Upon autopsy, it was found that Taylor had been choked with a ligature and struck with a flashlight and that her head had been hit into a pipe that was actually in the ground. She had been struck in the head six times, one of which was with such force it was the one that cracked her skull, leading to her demise. With no leads, police released photos of Taylor taken at home before she left. It's really hard to imagine seeing your child or friend in a torn-up costume with smears of blood across her face and have that be the last photo before she's found beaten and bloody. It's a really sad irony. In the months that passed, the only lead police received was from a letter that was sent to the detectives. It claimed to have been from Taylor's killer. But it didn't take them long to realize that the lack of detail and accuracy meant it was a fake. Why do people do that? Just it makes me so attention. pissed. But for what? You're not putting your name on it, so how are you actually getting attention? Uh, maybe it's a weird control thing or just the delight of like it's I so know I'm up. I know I'm wasting their time or I know that I'm going to be the one to make them look into this or something. It is a there is a special place in hell for those Absolutely. types of people. Absolutely. Although police were getting calls with tips, they had no real evidence to stand on. Luckily, a fast-thinking nurse at the hospital clipped Taylor's fingernails in case they had any DNA under them, which, thank goodness, she did. Running the DNA, it didn't give police a suspect, but it did come up as a match for a suspect of a sexual assault in 2005. So they don't know who that person is. No, but they go, that's a match to that. So once they get that person, going going to jail. During that incident, a man had gone to the Garden of Eden, an escort agency. There was only one employee there at the time, and she took the young man on a tour. Getting to an upstairs bedroom, he grabbed the woman by her ponytail and pushed her to the ground. Pulling out a knife and holding it to the woman's throat, the attacker told her that she would be okay if she followed directions. Still holding the knife to her throat, he forced her to perform oral sex on him. He then forced her face down on a massage table before sodomizing her and binding her hands behind her back. Eventually, he left, and she was able to break out of the duct tape. Luckily, she not only reported the event, but she had scratched her assailant, unknowingly collecting the DNA that would eventually solve her rape and Taylor's murder. Interviewing the survivor of that incident, investigators were able to get a description of the suspect. They released all the details they had about him, height, age, weight, hair, and eye color. Thanks to that information, hundreds of tips started pouring in. What investigators took note of was the dozens of tips that specifically came from Cherryville, another small town an hour southeast of Armstrong. Mm. Those tips all said they knew someone that matched the description of the suspect. That suspect's name was Matthew Forster. One of the stronger tips coming in was from Matthew's landlord, who claimed he fled his apartment just days after Taylor's death. 
Seeking more evidence, the police started to monitor the phone calls of Matthew's father. That's when they overheard 60-year-old Stephen Forster talking to his 28-year-old son, Matthew, who was getting tips from his dad as to how to evade police. Oh, God. Come on, parents. The advice soon changed to action when Stephen provided Matthew with a fake ID so he could make his escape to Ontario and get a new job. Okay, that's going above and beyond, like, loving your child. It's one thing to protect, to be like, I don't think I can talk to the cops or something, but it's like... You're obviously scared of losing your child to jail. Imagine how the family... And that just makes me think they condone that behavior. Exactly. That it's okay to rape people. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, you messed up. That's okay. We'll just fix it. And it's like, imagine the hurt your child caused that family. You're so worried about your own hurt. Look at what your own Mm -hmm. kid did. Oh, it's so gross. Once police felt they were on the trail of a solid suspect, they used the phone tap on Stephen's phone to track down Matthew living a new life under a new name in a new city. Officers brought Matthew in for questioning. It had taken five months, but in April of 2012, Matthew was arrested and charged with Taylor's murder. Not only did they run Taylor's DNA against that of the victim from 2005, which proved to be a match, but he was unable to provide a solid alibi. Taylor's DNA was discovered in his vehicle, and his phone was traced to the same area of Taylor's attack that Halloween night. Good luck getting out of that, bud. Yeah. When it came time for justice, it was actually the elder Forster who faced charges first. For his part in aiding his son in evading Mm -hmm. the police, Stephen Forster was sentenced to three years. Having served a year behind bars awaiting his trial, the judge allowed his time served to be part of his sentence. I hope he learned a lesson. Uh, Hopefully. In spring of 2014, Matthew's trial began. On the second day, his lawyer filed an admission. Matthew took responsibility for the death of Taylor, but only to the extent of manslaughter. He claimed that on Halloween, he had left home and gone looking for sex. It was clear that he was seeking non-consensual sex, as he didn't do what the average 20-something would do on Halloween. Go to a bar. Go to a bar. Pay for sex. Go to a nightclub. Find a sex worker. No, he left his home, drove an hour away to a small town where no one knew him, and drove around looking for a target while drinking and smoking pot. Manslaughter my ass. I'm sorry. God. He was only a couple hours into his cruising before he spotted Taylor. Waiting until she was in the inescapable area of the train tracks, Matthew made his move and attempted to rape Taylor after pushing her down. Using a shoelace, he started to strangle her, but she fought back and she fought hard, ending up with defensive wounds on her arms, broken fingers, cuts, bruises, and collecting that incredibly important piece of DNA by scratching Matthew. Running out of town, Matthew discarded the shoestring and flashlight. At the trial, the video of the confession from when police questioned Matthew was shown. There are some that argue that he was questioned for too long or that he may have been coerced, which we know is always possible, as are false confessions. But in this case, it's hard to argue false confession when there's also DNA involved. Mm -hmm. At trial, the defense tried to say Matthew confessed to drinking, and that's why, when he was being questioned, he said there were points he must have blacked out. When it came to Taylor's death, they blamed her saying she was trying to get away from his initial attempted attack, and she slipped on the small ridge next to the tracks, falling with her head landing on the pipe in the ground. Okay. (laughs) How dare you blame a victim Yeah, trying to get away from a perpetrator for her own death? Are you kidding me? You're still responsible. 
she wouldn't have been running for her when life. When you're drunk driving and something you do causes someone to crash mm-hmm. and die, who's responsible? Yeah, that action wouldn't have happened without what you did. That makes me so mad. Yeah, so it's I, I hope that's clear that so it, it was this, you know, line of track. But then once you got into this area, my understanding is once you got into this certain area, there was like a, a ridge uh, on the side. Right. So not like unclimbable, but just cumbersome. Surrounded yeah, by. Yeah. So that's why it was it hard to not get quite a tunnel, but you would have to climb. So right. that was his whole thing is she was climbing that to escape him. And then she you're fell on that still pipe. the cause of it, but Exactly. So, so that's why they're saying manslaughter. Yes. That Ugh. he didn't do it, but yeah, he's kind of responsible. They also tried to say he wasn't there to sexually assault Taylor, and since there was no proof of rape, that the charge should be lessened. Those desperate attempts did not work. Even Good. with the confession and admission, there was still the fight for manslaughter, but Matthew was found guilty by the jury of first-degree murder. Of course, the family couldn't move on and process the loss of their beloved child because in 2017, a judge granted Matthew a new trial based on an appeal that the jury was not given accurate directions. That direction, that him disposing of the shoelace and flashlight was not a clear indication that he had committed the murder. They also argued that the judge wasn't specific enough about how the jury could interpret the text of being creeped. I'm at a loss. I know you're very upset about this one. I... I understand your life, your life is at stake when you are going to prison, but the audacity. That's what's always so upsetting, the lack of taking responsibility. It's And it's right then shocking. is when you know if someone's going to be rehabilitated or not. I'm really, I mean, really. At least that's my opinion. I'm not a professional. <laughs> I think, it, but I think that says a lot. If someone is able to say, I screwed up. I did this horrible, horrible thing that I should never be forgiven send for. Send me to jail to do Please my time. Please send me to do my time. I'm not going to appeal. I'm not going to force you to go through trial. And then I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to get an education. I'm going to have a job. And then if you're up for parole, that's that's one situation. Mm-hmm. But to, from the beginning, be fighting, well, it was her fault. And no, you, you did that wrong at the trial. And it's just like you have no heart. You have no humanity. Luckily for the family, they didn't have to sit through another trial. Matthew took a deal and pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, a lesser charge with a lesser sentence. For the murder of 18-year-old Taylor Van Deest, Matthew Forster was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 17 years, an outcome that left Taylor's friends and family saddened. Taylor doesn't get her life back in 17 years, so why should Matthew? His defense team argues he's been focusing on his own addiction issues in prison, working to rehabilitate via Alcoholics Anonymous and other programs, which I always say is the goal. And so that makes this a difficult case for me for the rehabilitation Mm -hmm. because there's just so much disgust and anger towards someone who would go out of their way to hunt someone and to serve a sentence that's less than the age of the life he took. It just it's really hard. And that's and that's the difficult thing about these conversations is do I believe in rehabilitation do I think prison is used too much do I think things can be done better absolutely but it's a case by case it is a case by case because you hear someone that drove out of their way to do this this was the goal and he did it and then he ran away that wasn't the end of charges for Matthew though he was charged for the assault against the sex worker in 2005 and for another attack in 2004. Ooh, do tell. There was a reason Matthew left his hometown of Cherryville when he went hunting for prey that Halloween night. 
He had already tried to assault someone close by, and it didn't go to his plan. Breaking into the home of a sleeping 19-year-old woman, the 18-year-old Matthew grabbed her by the hair before he slammed her head into the wall and told her to come with him. He wore a mask but called her by her name, leading her to believe she might have known him. When she started to scream and said she was going unconscious while bleeding from the head, a scared Matthew fled. The dazed and injured teenager went to the police and even said she suspected it was Matthew. Just as lucky as the other case, she had scratched him and collected DNA. When his name was brought up, police brought Matthew in for questioning, but his dad, Stephen, forced himself into the room. Oh, boy. This Dur- guy. I, the this Stephen guy. fucking yeah. guy. During the interview, Stephen provided an alibi for Matthew, taking him off the suspect list. It's really hard to not be mad at the lack of investigating here. Perhaps Matthew could have been caught and Taylor would still be alive if they had done more to take the word of a suspect or his clean record. To the new charges, Matthew pleaded guilty, which was fine with all parties involved as it meant they wouldn't have to be dragged through the trauma of a trial. What they weren't pleased with was the outcome. It was already offensive he would be eligible for parole in 17 years, but with each additional assault, he was sentenced six years. Those 12 years were to be served concurrently of each other and of his 17 years for the murder. If he does get out on parole, he will have to register as a sex offender for life. I hate concurrent sentences. Yeah. Abolish concurrency. Yeah. I really, really, really hate it. It's not fair. Uh, it's or like time served. And so, so I I was assaulted, very minorly assaulted in Vegas many years ago. And I pressed charges and the guy was arrested and I ID'd him. I did all the stuff. I was ready for trial, all of this. And the night before it was going to trial, they called and they're like, he took a deal. And I was like, great. What's the outcome? What does that mean? And they said, oh, he got time served. And I go, time served? This just happened. They go, no, for a previous sexual assault. It's just (laughs) it's diminishing each victim when you do that. Mm -hmm. I... I don't understand. Like I, I don't for the life of me understand. I understand time served for a single case. I don't I mean, understand even the, even the dad, even the dad, the time served because he waited in jail for a year and then it was a three year sentence. So he did serve three that. years. That makes sense, right? But I was like, and I, you know, if this happened today, I would obviously have some different words. But I was just like, I was dumbfounded. Like how, how is it what happened to me not equal mm-hmm. to what happened to that person? And why is it that that person doesn't get their own justice? Yeah. Like, why am I being put on that person? And I also, uh, by the way, if this guy keeps having sexual assault charges, maybe he needs more time in jail. <laughs> like, yeah. maybe it shouldn't be time. Yeah, I find it very frustrating because when you are serving concurrent sentences for different people. Right. That is just disrespectful to me. If it is a single incident, right. I can understand that, I guess. Especially I mean, still this, I'm unhappy with it. Where but. it's three in a row where he has done head injuries. He has raped. He's not going to he stop. He's a serial attacked. rapist. He is a serial rapist who could have been a serial killer, which almost was if they didn't drop the ball or if they had dropped the ball. And it's like he's proven over and over and over again, literally, that that's his M.O. Yeah, that's really... And to say like, oh, yeah, that's fine. We'll just say that those not only do those years go together for these two separate attacks, yeah, I'd like but to hear those go into the from other. someone in the court system why there's such a thing as concurrent sentences because yeah. I really don't get it. I could I the only other thing I could see it for also is like 
if you did have a serial killer, someone like BTK or something, and you can say concurrent life sentence because you're only going to get it once. And then yes, you can that say makes sense. he's serving he's not a, getting out. He's serving his life sentence for all of those victims. Yeah, because you can. There's That's no point in giving. Thing. Honestly, 384 oh, years. There's no point. Yeah, but that makes sense. But when it is uh, a possibility of getting out and yeah. you're serving concurrent sentences, makes no sense. And to you're me. getting charged for these horrible crimes, uh, like after you've already been charged yeah, for murder. It's really disappointing. Yeah, and you know what though? At least it happens in Canada too. <laughs> We are all doing it wrong, you know? <laughs> there's, I'm sure there's a reason for it. Something. I just don't know it. I'll Google it later. <laughs> when those 17 years are up, hopefully he's either rehabilitated and can truly live a different life, or the parole board will see that they have a serial attacker, someone who could have potentially become a serial killer in the place he should be. We'll just have to wait and see how it turns out when he's up for parole in 2029. When giving a victim statement, the survivor of the 2004 attack had this to say. On the day I was attacked, I woke up and blood was coming out of my head. I remember there was so much blood it covered my body. I was in a lot of pain and I was very disoriented. I have never been so scared in my life. Hopefully, all of the survivors and families of those that were victims of Matthew Forster have found ways to care for themselves and to find peace. As part of my personal effort to do more to cover missing persons regarding people of color and indigenous people, at the end of each episode, I'll be sharing a missing person story. This is a very recent and still active case in the Portland area. Last seen on September 20th, so literally less than a month ago, Juana Morales was walking in the Hazelwood area of Northeast Hasselow Street and 128th Avenue. It was 9 p.m. and she didn't have her phone or any money on her. Juana Morales was last seen wearing a green shirt, blue jeans, a black jacket, and black shoes. She's in her early 40s and 5'5". Five five. If you know anything about Juana's location, you're asked to call 911. Her family is desperate to have her back home. They were talking about that, how you can really understand anybody from anywhere. And I oh, just thought it was rad. so beautiful. That is beautiful. Uh, so oh, is that's that. not. That's not. <laughs> she had a happy child. child, child. Oh, oh, you caught what I got. I sure did. Funky I've got dunk. Swollen tongue syndrome. <laughs> Longer term positive outcome. Outcome. Uh, watching TV in the middle of the night and there's like a Shaggy song on a commercial or something and I just started saying, I was like, the Mr. Bombastic. And Josh is like, that is how he sounds. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's how you sing to Shaggy. That's why I was shocked it ever got popular. I remember distinctly on my way to Mount Hood Community College for the first time that was on the radio oh and God, even then funny. I was thinking, how is this a thing? <laughs> Do we hear that he sounds like he's sucking on helium or something? Anyone? Hello? Shaggy? No, 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 Hello? No, 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 no. It wasn't me. <laughs> Let's just talk. Hey, this whole somebody will listen. This whole episode, Shaggy voices only. <laughs> How was your week? Did you do anything exciting? Along, along, the word is among. You stupid. What an idiot. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs>
Ah, that's funny. I need to read my. I burped as well. <laughs> Perfect. Great minds. <laughs> we need Josh here to babysit us. We're just like, I, don't know. <laughs> I know we are. So, it wasn't me. We're so off task when he's not in here. Our he's task gonna master. make you edit this episode. I know. I should. <laughs> oh my God. As punishment. <laughs> Listen to yourself. You're ridiculous. Look at you, twelve-year-old adults. <laughs> so that dude ate Zeus. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Gaia walked into the room, and he, the guy had a big full belly, and she's like, "Where are all our kids?" And he goes, "Oh, Rosalind." <laughs> Classic. Way to tie it all together. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 